Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 20 and 21. The message is entitled, Power to Live. Paul uh, continues to tell the Ephesians of the immense wealth they possess in Christ and is praying that they become fully aware of their position in Christ. He prayed that they might know, in verse 18, what is the hope of God's call, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance of the saints, then in 19, what the exceeding greatness of His power to them who believe according to the working of His mighty power. And now Paul continues in his prayer to qualify the type of power that is available working towards us who believe by a threefold description, and it's found here in verses 20 and 21. He says, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion, in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And so, Paul the Apostle gives this specific type of power that is available to us and is working towards us through the threefold description. First, it's the power of his resurrection, the first portion of verse 20. Second, you have the power of his coronation, the second half of 20. And then you have the power of his exaltation in verse 21. Resurrection, coronation, exaltation. The power of his resurrection comes first. Listen to his words. Which he worked in Christ when he raised them from the dead. The Apostle Paul prayed for the Ephesians to comprehend that the same resurrected power, that's omnipotence, that is all-powerful, that raised Jesus from the dead, was working in their behalf. He wanted them to understand. He's praying for them. The kind of power indicated points back to the previous verse, verse 19. Notice, the boundless divine power of God's omnipotence here. Remember the phrase exceeding greatness. It means um, to throw beyond, to surpass or exceed uh, for the efficiency of God's inherent power residing in him by virtue of his nature. He's God. And it's the present active. As you're a child of God, his power is working towards you uh, to benefit you. God being the source of his own uh, all power, omnipotence, dependent on no one, nothing else, limitless. Now this omnipotence, inherent power, resides in God always, and it's made available for all things in our life. Again, verse 19, he's pointing back to that, the word mighty there and the word power. As we saw last week, his endowment or possession of power to manifest that strength. All these words pile up, uh, piled up are trying to express the all-sufficient power of God working his operative power for us. And he'll make this mention again in chapter 6, verse 10. That's why Paul says that chapter 1, 2, and 3 on the outline is the believer's wealth. By the love of God. First three chapters, the wealth of the believer. 
Twice these two words are joined together in the epistle. Mighty and power. Endowed and possess power in order to manifest strength. God's strength, not ours. That's always the choice. If we lean to our own, then we try to do it ours. Now we can do something, but we can get caught up and think we can do all things, and pretty soon we get in trouble. Now the one who operates this power uh, to raise Christ, notice this, the Father. He's the one that raised him. The personal pronoun he refers to the Father. Um, there in verse 20, the beginning. He is called the God of Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verse 3. They had been dead in trespass and sins, and he had made them alive through the resurrected power uh, through the new birth, as chapter 2, verse 1 and 2 will tell us when we get there. They were being sanctified and transformed by the same resurrected power to live apart from sin and holiness after the new birth. You and I can identify with this. There was a break in sin. There was a time when there was a turn. There was a difference in our life. And it wasn't by our own power prior to being born again, but after being born again. They would one day die physically. But their physical bodies would be raised from the dead at the rapture, as 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 and other passages tell us. So this power is working. It's working on us now, and it will continue to work in its final aspect of glorification. Now notice, the Apostle Paul here declared this resurrected power, being supernatural, altered the process of death. The body of Jesus was not left in hell, nor did it see corruption. This was prophetic in the Psalms, in Psalms 16, 10 through 11. Peter quoted it on the day of Pentecost. He says, Him being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death whom God raised, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For he foreseen this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Acts 2, 23 and 24, and 31 and 32. The physical body of Jesus died and was resurrected as a glorified body. He was not just brought back from the dead, as Lazarus and, 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 and uh, Jairus' daughter. Literally, having raised him, listen, out from, ek is the word, out from the dead. Not brought back, but out from the dead. That's what the Greek tells us. The glorious body of Jesus had now had new capacities, as you know. It passed through walls. It could be touched at the same time like a physical body. It could receive food and contain it, as he ate with the apostles and disciples there up in Galilee. The power of the resurrection changed some important things also. The resurrection robbed death of its sting and Hades of its victory, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians um, 15, 55 through 56. Oh, grave, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where's your victory? The resurrection destroys Satan who had the power of death, Hebrews 4, 14 tells us. 
The resurrection is the very heart of the gospel message. You go through Acts, you can't miss it. Chapter 2, verse 24, 32, 315, 410, 1040, on and on and on in every epistle. You remove the resurrection, you just have a martyr. A religious martyr. That's all you have. The death was the payment. The receipt was the resurrection. Paid in full. This power is so essential for you and I. It would be like remaining in the darkness of a room because I wasn't aware of the electrical power available at the flick of the switch. So I would remain in that darkness when all I would have to do is go to the wall and flick the switch and the light comes on. Power to blot out my sins. Listen, Acts 13, 36, 39. For David, after he has served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Only in his death and resurrection and in his name. Power to love my enemy. But love your enemies, do good. And then hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and the evil, Luke 6.35. Look how kind and how thankful, uh, how kind God is to the unthankful, the evil of the world. He lets them breathe another day. He provides work for them. He gives them health. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, right? Now, if I was God, I'd smoke them. I wouldn't let him breathe. Power to believe God for the supernatural. Mark 16, 18. It says in these signs, 17 and 18, um, will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. This is the Great Commission. That's the context. As missionaries goes out, this happens all the time. You guys, ladies, have I've heard Melissa come from Africa to share with you. And she was sharing us one time. You know, the, 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 the natives there in Africa, the other people, they, they try to poison the missionaries all the time and they don't die. And they blow their mind. Now, some do. But they also see that some don't. So this isn't for you to just pick up a serpent. This isn't for you to just down a quart of, of poison, okay? You don't tempt the Lord. This is a protection for those he sends out. Power to live above my situation and be victorious. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen says, No temptation is overtaking you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will... Make also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Thank God for that verse, but I hate it. At the same time, because when I don't yield to it and I try to do it in my own rationale, my own abilities, I fail tremendously. When I yield to God, 
I'm victorious when I don't. I'm not. You think you and I would learn, but we don't. <laughs> Power to raise me up one day. God both raised up the Lord, will also raise up us by His power. 1 Corinthians 6.14 The power of His resurrection is at work for us. This is Paul's prayer that they might come to comprehend. Maybe you're going through different things. Relationship, your husband, your wife. Things of the past, things of the present, something. We got to deal with reality. We have to put ourselves on the altar. And we have to deny ourselves. We have to die. We have to say, Lord, your will be done, not mine. That's not, that's not our cup of tea. <laughs> as long as everything's going fine, it's great being a Christian. But when you have to be a Christian, that is not so great. Notice, secondly. The power of his coronation, the second half of 20. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, the Apostle Paul declared the coronation position is one of permanence and rest. Two words, seated him. Literally, having seated him. A done deal. The high priest in the Old Testament, in, in the tabernacle and in the temple of Solomon, as you know, never rested. There were two rooms, the holy place, 15 by 30, and the most holy or holy of holies, 15 by 15, a perfect cube. In the first, the holy place, it contained the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. The Holy of Holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat over it with two cherubims, one on each hand. The wings crossed, they looked towards the center down. God would appear there to the priests. There was no chair in either room indicating the work of the priest was never done. The work had to be repeated over and over and over again. The offering of the sacrifices, the bread, the incense. Hebrews 10.1 says... For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. The high priest was always working, acting as a mediator for the sinner, a type of Christ. Offering sacrifices, offering the blood on the altar on the horns, Filleting the animal, offering prayers. Jesus being seated indicates he accomplished the finished work of atonement with full authority as mediator. Remember Stephen when he was preaching to the synagogue of uh, the Cyrenians there. In Acts seven fifty five and 56, Stephen said, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Jesus stood to receive the first martyr of the church in the book of Acts. 
He was sitting the finished work. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. In Luke 22, Jesus told Peter, Satan has wanted to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you return to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for me. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows when Satan wants to sift me as wheat. Now listen, wheat has to be sifted. You must separate the wheat from the shaft. So God will allow difficulties. God will allow problems. God will allow my the chinks in my armor to surface. That all of me may be done away with the shaft. And so what remains is the wheat. You can't get away from it. As long as you live in this earth. In Hebrews 7. 21 through 24. It says the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Literally, untransferable. It's of one kind. The order of Melchizedek, not from the tribe of Levi, but he came from Judah. And it's not transferable. It stops with Jesus. There's nobody to take his place. The Apostle Paul declared this coronation position of authority as one earned. And notice inaugurated at a set time at the right hand. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. God eternal. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And God was the Word. Jesus became flesh through the incarnation, verse 14 of John 1. And the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was the last Adam to reconcile us back to God due to the fall of the first Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.45. He made Him a living soul. He made the last Adam a generating or quickening spirit. Jesus came in fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. The sacrifices, shadows and types of the law. The entire book of Leviticus. You want the interpretation, the commentary on Leviticus, the fulfillment, the book of Hebrews. Put them back to back. It's the Leviticus of the New Testament. Jesus came as the Lamb of God to die, to propitiate the sins of the world, and to save those who would believe in Him. John 1, 29, 1 John 2, 2. Jesus died a horrible death being crucified. The wrath of God was poured out upon Him for sinners, for me, for you, as my substitute. Psalm 22 is a vivid 
description of crucifixion. Isaiah 53. 700 years before the crucifixion, Isaiah describes it. The psalmist in the times of David. Jesus dismissed his spirit and said, It is finished. What was the work of atonement for sinners? John 19.30 Jesus descended into Hades, preached to those present there, and led them to heaven. Ephesians 4, 9 and 10 and 1 Peter 3, 19 and 21. But then Jesus was raised from the dead, out from the dead, and ascended up on high to the Father to be seated at the right hand of God. Once again, you can go through Acts all the way through Romans, Colossians, Hebrews, 1 Peter, all of them. Punch in your computer, right hand. <clears throat> Going to fill your screen. This was the prophetic of Jesus. Psalm 110.1. Listen. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Hebrews 10, 12 through 13 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies were made his footstool. Hebrews is quoting Psalm 110.1. It's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The privilege, the power, the authority, the majesty, the exaltation as we'll see through this entire text. Notice the Apostle Paul declared this coronation position involves the highest privilege, dignity and honor in the heavenly places. The right hand is the place of all authority and power, but it's in the heavenlies. The place of the unique rule of the Son of God, Jesus. He is there with a physical glorified body. He's the God-man. He is not in the same existence prior to the incarnation. He is now sitting there as a God-man, as a glorified, in a glorified body, as the Lamb of God. John the Beloved in the book of Revelation says, Behold the Lamb of Judah. I saw a lamb as it had been slain. His very marks on him are still present. Isaiah says there's no beauty in him that we should desire him. Very possibly we'll see those marks when we see him. The place of intercession for sinners, as we said. This authority and power does not originate or come from the earth notice. They are from the Father in heaven. They are spiritual, not physical. The phrase heavenly is in the plural, literally, heavenlies. And we pointed that out in our introduction and in chapter 1, verse 3. It refers to the spatial realm of the unseen world, of spiritual reality. 
If God would open our eyes in this auditorium right now, you would see good angels and bad angels battling right now. They dwell in the lower atmosphere, as we'll point out. The sphere or dimension is supreme over all the earth below, where the spiritual world is active and present. The word places, as you know, is in italics, as we pointed out before. It means that it's not in the original Greek, and the translator have inserted it in italics so that you understand it's not in the original text, which is a very honest footnote, which is good. But it just completes the thought in the English. That's why they insert it. Now, Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the lower region of the atmosphere, is the sphere of his deception and his reign with his angels. The phrase heavenly appears five times, only here in this epistle, nowhere else. The first one we've seen, but look at chapter 1, verse 3. It indicates dominion and rule of God to impart to the believer all that is necessary in the process of salvation there in chapter 1, verse 3. Spiritual blessings in the heavenlies. The second here in verse 20, as we see, it refers to the exceeding great power for the benefit of the believer due to the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies. The third is found in chapter 2, verse 6. It refers to the believer being seated in the heavenlies with Christ by His grace alone. So, while Christ is seated there, so are you and I in the heavenlies. We're joiners with Jesus Christ. We have access to the throne as often as we want. The fourth time is found in chapter 3, verse 10. It refers to the church giving witness to angels in the heavenlies about the manifold wisdom of God. In other words... First Peter, I believe chapter 1, 10 through 12, something like that. It tells us that angels stoop down, looking down to the earth, to the church, to see what God's going to do, how he's going to do it. In other words, angels don't know the future. They are watching day by day, moment by moment, what God will do through us, in us, and by us. And they're blown away. The fifth and last time is in chapter 6, verse 12. It refers to the spiritual warfare that is constantly going on in the heavenlies. You are born into warfare. You have no choice. The only choice you have is whether you will fight properly or not. If you fight biblically, you will be victorious. If you don't, you will be defeated. But it's a personal choice. No one can make that for you. Hebrews 1, verse 1 through 3 says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoken times past to the Father by the prophet, has in these last days spoken unto us by his dear Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory... In the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
finished, complete. As you know, the Roman law of adoption gave an adopted son the honor and privilege of a natural-born son. So any Roman citizen could go out, even though he may have five sons of his own, he could go out and adopt a young man and make him his son and leave him as heir. And when he adopted him, he would be considered by the law as a natural-born son. This is exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's what the word that is used for adoption. Sometimes Christians forget the place of honor they hold being called by God. We're called sons and daughters of God many, many places. Second Corinthians 6.18 is one of them. But when you're a son and a daughter, you look to your father, your mother, with, with a sense of honor and privilege and, and a sense of pride in the proper perspective. You, you, you look up to them. Maybe your father is, is known in the community and they say, Hey, are you, uh, are you Charlie's boy? Oh, yeah. Have you ever been excited to tell somebody you're a son or a daughter of God? Or do you keep it quiet? Now, there's some parents that you know, say, Are you a son? Mm-mm, no. We deny it. We're recipients of God's unmerciful grace, our unmerited grace. Ephesians 2 8 9. We can forget that. We can get to the place we say, well, you know, I wasn't that bad. At least I wasn't as bad as you, so I have to be good if you were bad. And we do weird things with our mind. But we forget that what goes on in our mind has the source in the heart. It's always, it's always the well of, of poison, the heart. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says. So we're to come to the throne of grace to find grace and help in time of need. We can forget that. We have access to the Father by one spirit, Ephesians 2, 18 will tell us. All have the same relationship. All have the same access. There's no favors with God. He respects no one. The honor of being God's ambassador of good news sometimes is forgotten also. The privilege to have fellowship with God and each other is to be the fullness of joy in First John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. You know, if, if, I don't know how long you're in the world. I don't know when you got saved. But if you were in the world long enough, you, you know that you can have a certain amount of fellowship with friends and it's fun. But even if you stay in the world, after a while, you get out of your teens, you start getting in your 20s, your mid-20s, you move on. Some of that um, neat fellowship turns into some funky fellowship, and pretty soon there's no um, compatibility. In fact, there can be animosity, and it can get downright nasty. Because things happen, don't they? Because um, the longer we live, the more corrupt we get, and the more 
wise we think we are and the more we think we can get away with. Sometimes just because of who we are or who we know or what we can do. And so we, we presume upon our person and relationships are broken and marred and scarred. And now in Christ we can protect those relationships and those um, dealings with people. Honoring, loving them, respecting them, setting those boundaries, understanding those things, being the first to say, listen, I'm sorry, I was wrong, please forgive me. It makes all the difference in the world. The privilege to know the purpose and meaning of life by His Word that I has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. That's speaking about here and now in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 down, down to 16. The natural man thinks it's foolishness, but the spiritual man understands all things, and, and the Spirit is the one who, who makes those things alive. But we've got to put on the mind of Christ, verse 16 says. I can't use my earthly mind, my worldly mind, the mind of the old man. So there's constant battle in my mind, in my heart. I have to fight. I have to, I have to put down. I have to deny. I have to run away from. I have to do different things. The privilege to sit in a place of honor wherever God would have me to be a servant, let alone to think that we sit in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. The privilege of being joint heirs to Jesus Christ, Romans eight seventeen, And that everything that pertains to Him belongs to me also. <laughs> wow. The privilege to reign with Christ one day, Revelation 20, verse 6. The power of his coronation is available to us. It's at our fingertips. Notice thirdly comes the power of his exaltation in verse 21. The apostle Paul declared the superiority of Jesus being above every creature, rank and order in heaven and in earth, angelic or human. Far above all principalities and powers and mights and dominion. Principalities means a first one or leader. All these are used or were used by the Gnostics for teaching angelic hierarchy. You know the Gnostic had emanations. They believed that angels, you know, they went out far from God. And they're the ones that created matter. And matter is evil. Spirit is good. Therefore, you know, Jesus couldn't have had a body. Because if he had a body, it would be evil. And therefore, spirit doesn't affect the matter. The matter doesn't affect the spirit. So you as a human being could, could call yourself a Christian. And you could indulge in the body with fornication, drunkenness, this and that. Because it doesn't affect your spirit. What a convenient religion. Kind of sounds like the emergent church today. Amazing. These men, so these figures here, these words describe and are used to describe both human individuals as well as angelic beings. Okay? So I believe the context touches both of these. When we get to chapter 6, verse 12, he focuses strictly on the angelic uh, wickedness. 
But here, it probably uh, applies to both. Men of high office, positions in the world. This includes the first order of angels, good and evil. It's used for evil angels. Romans 8.38, Ephesians 6.12. Power. Exousia is the word. It means delegated authority. Remember, they asked Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? That's the word. These are men who, under the authority of others, use uh, uh, their ability in government. So it's used for government. Romans 13, 1 and 2. This would include angels, good and evil also. Again, Ephesians 6, 12, the word is there. Might. It means inherent power residing by virtue of its nature. These men are those who rule inherently over others, such as kings, dictators, and it's also used for God in Ephesians 3, 7, 16, and 20. So that which is passed down to you, who you are by a position. This would include, again, angels over other ranks of angels, good or evil. Jesus above all these. Dominions means lordship. Those men who rule over others with absolute authority. Second Peter 2.10 is a good cross-reference. This would include, again, angels over other angels, good and evil. And it's used for fallen angels in Colossians 1.16. Listen to Colossians 1.16. Jesus created all things. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. There is nothing above Jesus. Everything is beneath Jesus. The angels are created spirits to serve God and man, as you know. They're divided into good and evil. Those fallen through the rebellion of uh, in heaven, led by Lucifer, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. One third of them were led astray, Revelation 12, 4, by Satan. Some are called demons needing a physical body to possess. But they are fallen angels. Some of these angels seem to be behind the evil of nations. Such as Michael indicates to Daniel about the prince of Persia. And Ezekiel about the king of Tyre. Daniel 10, 13 and 20. Ezekiel 28, 1 through 20. And I think of Isis, not Isol, as Obama says. ISIS, because ISIL includes Israelis. Interesting. And so you have evil angels over nations. Hitler, his right-hand man, studied the occult, went all over South America trying to find the opening on the earth. The Abuso. He got direct messages through demons. The entire plot to destroy the Jews by Hitler was demonic. 
the entire plot by the radical jihadist Muslim because that's the only type of Muslim there are. Don't give me this moderate. Define it for me. Show me a country that exercises it like that that's Muslim. There's not one. They all believe in Sharia law. And they live under it. And so you have demons from the pit of hell over nations, over leaders. And they seek them out. And they're directed. Some are possessed. Satan is the prince and the power of the air, the god of this world. He holds men captive at his will. Ephesians 2.2, 2, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, and 2 Timothy 2.26. But do you know that we will judge angels? 1 Corinthians 6.3, <laughs> the believer. Of course, not the good angels, but bad angels. We will judge. Paul rebukes the Corinthians. You guys aren't even mature enough to judge the things in the church. Don't you know that you will judge angels? <laughs> Notice the Apostle Paul declared the supremacy of the name of Jesus above every name that is named. So he is superior to everybody. And he has supremacy by name. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. This age refers to the present age of man. The name Jesus, as you know, means Yahweh of salvation. Indicating his character, his nature, his deity, all that he is. Gabriel told Mary, his name shall be Emmanuel, God with us, Matthew one twenty three. In the name of Jesus, devils are cast out, Luke 9.49 and many other passages. In the name of Jesus, healing is available. We see it through the book of Acts, Acts 4, 4 through 10. James 5, 14 says, call the elders and all will all lay hands, pray for the sick. Only in the name of Jesus and no other name, salvation is given, Acts 4, 12. For his name, you will be hated and reproached, Jesus said in Luke 21, 17, 1 Peter 4, 14. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus answered, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Mark 14, 60-62. Wow. The extent of the supremacy of the name of Jesus is during this age 
in the age to come. The word age means period or duration. The present age is man's age, fallen, where grace is being poured out. Jesus is choosing the church for himself, Jew and Gentile, one in Christ. He will remove his church at the rapture. There will be seven years of tribulation. We'll return to set up the kingdom. That's the age to come, the kingdom age. Paul commanded the evil spirit that possessed the girl at Philippi, if you remember, to come out of her in the name of Jesus Christ in Acts 16, 18. And boy, were her masters upset because their gain was gone. Power. In the name of Jesus. We have to rest in the work of Jesus completely or live in unbelief. Matthew eleven twenty nine through 30, Jesus said, and given the invitation to salvation, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the offer that he gives to you and myself. It's easy as light to rest in him. But the author to the book of Hebrews looks to the fact now after salvation in Hebrews 4, 1 through 3, and he says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, Let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the world which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said. So I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and died there. Not believing God, though he had delivered them. Two entered the promised land above the age 20. Only two. We have power to do warfare with Satan and his angels. If and when we need to. We fight against angelic hosts of Satan So we must put on the entire armor of God and be filled with the Spirit of God. Ephesians 6, 9 through 18. Finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and be filled with the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. And he goes on and he speaks. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, principalities, power, domains of darkness, so on and so forth. And then he goes on and put on the armor of God. And he goes article after article. And he finishes up with prayer. That's part of the armor. We're not to be ignorant to Satan's devices that he can transform himself into angels of light. How do you know then if you know God's word? If you know God's word, whether it be an angel, Satan, or a person, you're going to know whether they're speaking the word of God or not. If it contradicts the word of God, if it compromises it, if it adds to or takes away, you know it's not the Holy Spirit. It's real simple. We have authority in the name of Jesus to be victorious. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says we can declare with all confidence that if a person repents of their sins, trusting in the work of Jesus on the cross and risen, they can be saved, believing in their heart and confessing with their mouth. That's where Jesus told 
uh, the disciples in, in, in John's Gospel 21. He says, those sins who you retain, they retain. Those who remit, they remit it. In other words, you can tell somebody, if you repent, your sins will be forgiven. But if you don't repent, you're still in your sins. You have all the authority to say that. So do I. When a person repents, they are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And you have all authority to remind them of that. And to declare that to them. We can know that all our sins have been committed, that have been committed, have been forgiven. Blotted out as if they never, ever happened. Psalm 103, 12, as far as east as the west. Isaiah 38, 17, he's cast them behind his back. Micah 7, 19, buried in the deepest ocean. Pretty final to me. So we have to be careful about condemnation, which comes from Satan, or from people, or from me. Condemnation is somebody rubbing your nose, and sins that you've confessed and have abandoned, they're forgiven. Conviction is sins that you're in, and the Holy Spirit or other people say, get out of there. You need to acknowledge it, confess it, and abandon it. That's conviction. We can pray and intercede in the name of Jesus for people and situations. Jesus spoke very clearly in John 14, 15, and 16 about praying to the Father in His name. In fact, John 16, 28, 26 to 28 says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that, that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father Himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came forth from the Father and I have come into the world again. I leave the world to go to the Father. So we ask it in the name of Jesus to the Father. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth. And those under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Right now the bowing of the knee is voluntary. Recognizing and acknowledging that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And I ask Him to forgive me. And He graciously forgives me and makes me His Son by grace through faith. When the church age closes, when He returns, judgment comes... It will be a bowing forcefully, not for salvation, but for judgment. There's a big difference when you bow your knee. As we walk and live in the Spirit, greater is He that's in us than He that's in the world, and the wicked one does not touch us, we're told in 1 John 4 4 and 1 John 5 18. So I have to abide in Christ. I must look to Him, I must trust Him. I must grow, I must mature, develop. I must trust Him, not myself. So the power of His exaltation benefits us. And here He lays it out, this threefold power, by description. It's the same power, but He puts it in three different categories. The power of His resurrection is at work for us. The power of His coronation is available to us. 
And the power of His exaltation benefits us. Man. Do you see why Paul said we're wealthy? (laughs) In Christ Jesus? Wow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your love. Your goodness, Lord, we pray that you deal with our hearts. Lord, help me to trust you more and to see you work in my life in a greater way, Lord, that I would just, Father, put on that armor and do good warfare, all of us, Lord. And Lord, we pray as a body that we would um, continue to just see you work in a mighty way as we look to you and depend upon you, Lord. And Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, we pray that you would speak to their hearts and they would understand your love for them and your desire to save them. And so, Lord, we lift them to you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins, maybe you're over the Internet. You can say the Lord's uh, prayer of repentance right where you're at. That prayer crying out to Him to save you. No one can do it for you. You have to do it yourself. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ or over the internet, this is a prayer of repentance. And this is your prayer to Him, not to us. And He says He will forgive you. He will give you a new nature. He will make you a son or daughter. And He will give to eternal life. This is your prayer to Him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.